We are a peculiar people, sir. We are an agricultural people. We have no cities. We don't want them. We have no commercial marine, no navy. We don't want them. Your ships carry our produce, and you can protect your own vessels. We want no manufacturing. We desire no trading, no mechanical or manufacturing classes. As long as we have our rice, our sugar, our tobacco, and our cotton, we can command wealth to purchase all we want from those nations with which we are in amity and to lay up money besides. Senator Louis T. Wigfall, Democrat of Texas, 1861. Should be obvious to anyone in this room hearing that statement that the political economy of the Confederate South was fatally flawed. Not only did it rest upon the moral abomination of chattel slavery, they simply had no industry, no finance. They had a lot of G GDP on paper from their agricultural exports, but they had no productive powers. And in a great power competition against the Union in the Civil War, their economy and their military was destroyed, and they had lived a hundred years after that in the economic ruin of the choices that lie behind their approach to political economy. Today, there are some of our friends, both on the left and the right, who tell us that we should be embracing the political economy of the Confederate South facing up against the People's Republic of China. And I am here to tell you today that that is the path of national suicide. And if, that, if we want to avoid the fate of the Confederate South, we must discover how their ideology was defeated uh, by Lincoln's Republican Party in the 19th century. And it was defeated not just by military might, it was defeated by the American School of Economics. And the American School of Economics promoted the American system of tariffs, infrastructure improvements, a national bank, sound money, and balanced budgets. This system was not a reactionary tradition. It didn't seek to prop up failing industries. Rather, it was a tradition of growth, innovation, production, and national development. Nor was it a dismal science. Rather, it was a philosophy of freedom that sought to promote the ends of happiness, greatness, honor, prosperity, sovereignty, and national independence. So today I stand here hoping to vindicate the tradition of the American School of Economics, and I will do it in three parts. First, by talking about its history. Second, by discussing the leading thinkers and institutions of the tradition. And finally, by closing, reflecting on its legacy and its relevance for us today, especially vis-a-vis -vis China. First, the American founders fought the Revolutionary War to establish our economic and political independence from Great Britain. They established the world's largest free trade zone for the benefit of American, American citizens, and they protected that free trade zone with a tariff wall to both promote American manufacturing and to raise money for the federal government. They, were, they specifically had Great Britain in mind when doing this. The first bill that Washington signed through Congress was a tariff bill that was sponsored by James Madison. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, the father of American capitalism, the energetic treasury secretary, really was the architect of the American School of Economics, and his report on manufacturers is really the seminal text. Now, there was some opposition at first. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and others uh, staunchly opposed Hamilton's economic designs, but eventually most of the leading founding fathers would reconcile themselves with most of Hamilton's economic program. In 1803, Hamilton had the money in the bank uh, in part that he needed for the Louisiana Purchase, thanks to a budget surplus from tariff revenue the previous year. And, but it was really the War of 1812 and its aftermath that brought all of the founding fathers, sorry, all of the leading founding fathers, Madison, Adams, Jefferson, into agreement on Hamilton's program. What happened after the War of 1812? Well, the same thing happened 
that happened every time we finished a war with Great Britain. Britain did not like the fact that we had established manufacturing and industry in the United States. They wanted to keep us within their colonial system where we sent them raw materials. They produced high value added goods and sold it back to us uh, at a profit. They didn't like that. And so they were dumping uh, at a loss all sorts of excess goods into the American market. And James, Matt, sorry, John Adams writes that this was with the express purpose of annihilating our manufacturers and ruining our manufactories. So there was a consensus that formed at this time, you can see it in the letters of Jefferson, even the letters of Madison uh, to Henry Clay on the importance of prote protecting America's industrial independence. This consensus of the founders began to unravel, however, in the antebellum South. You see in the late 1820s, early 1830s, uh, former um, war hawks like John C. Calhoun, who was a nationalist and a defender of the American system, do a complete about face because they feared that the power of the uh, federal government and the Constitution would be used not only um, to promote the American system, but also to upend their system of racial hierarchy and slavery. And so you see really a trio of things being promoted by the South. It was, it was free trade, slavery, the divine origins of slavery, and secession. These three things went hand in hand, and by the time that we reached the Civil War, uh, Michael Lind actually points this out in his excellent book on the time, The Land of Promise, uh, the Confederate Constitution, when they drafted it, uh, it was really quite interesting. In the Confederate Constitution, they copied word for word from the American Constitution, uh, except they removed uh, three key phrases in the preamble. They removed perfect union, general welfare, and common defense. In other words, they took the common good out of the American Constitution. What did that mean in practice? Well, in practice, they specifically inserted clauses prohibiting tariffs, subsidies, and infrastructure improvements to foster industry. So removing the common good from America's Constitution meant deindustrialization. Thankfully, um, sorry. Uh, the reason that they did this and the reason that they were able to pull off such an economy with such shaky foundations is because they had allied themselves with a hostile foreign power, and that was Great Britain. Uh, the reason that Great Britain and the imperialists in, in London really liked free trade is because they benefited immensely uh, from the practice, because 90% of their cotton came from the American South, which, which they used for their textile exporting empire. Moreover, they had a near uh, virtual monopoly on selling manufactured goods in the American South, and the, the more free trade, the more it was an opportunity to really snuff out uh, industry in the United States, which could really threaten uh, British uh, economic and military hegemony. Uh, during the 1840s and 1850s in England, you see free trade um, really reached the status not of an ideology, but of a theology. It had a soteriological uh, imperative to it, and it really took on a utopian and messianic flair. You see this in the writings of men like Richard Cobden and publications like The Economist. Uh, Richard Cobden wrote in 1846, Quote, I see the free trade principle as that which shall act on the moral world as the principle of gravitation in the universe, drawing men together, thrusting aside the antagonism of race and creed and language, and uniting us in the bonds of eternal peace. Kind of creepy when you hear it. Hear it. Uh, but to the South, this gospel uh, was actually a balm to their conscience because they depended on their cheap British manufactured goods, and they also did not want the North to industrialize why? Because they needed cheap food and cheap clothing for their slaves, and if the North were to fully adopt the American system, it would stimulate demand for those goods in the Midwest, and it would raise the prices and break the economic viability of slavery. 
Uh, thankfully, uh, this system and program was defeated, and it was defeated by Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party. Lincoln famously quoted when campaigning for Henry Clay, give us a protective tariff and we will have the greatest nation on earth. And from the period of time between the Civil War and World War I, uh, the Republican Party adopted the American system. There was unprecedented economic growth, over 4% growth per year. Uh, the Confederacy de was def defeated, slavery was abolished, and America eventually, heading into the 20th century, eclipsed Great Britain as the world's greatest manufacturing power. Republicans had a virtual monopoly on uh, presidential elections during this period of time, uh, and it was so successful that Joseph Wharton, who uh, was a Pennsylvania industrialist, created the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania with the expressed purpose of promoting the American School of Economics because he believed that it was fundamental for our greatness and our prosperity. So who are the three, three or four leading thinkers that are part of this tradition who you need to know? The first group is Matthew and Henry Carey, father and son combo. Matthew Carey was an Irish nationalist, and he met Ben Franklin in a salon in Paris, and Franklin started funding his newspaper in Ireland. The newspaper in Ireland was advocating for Irish manufacturers. They thought this was key to Ireland's independence. Well, he got thrown in prison, uh, and Franklin helped him to escape to the United States, where he set up shop in Philadelphia. He started a uh, magazine called the American Museum. He started the Philadelphia Society to promote manufacturing and also a book publishing business. Now this was uh, so successful that all the founders were patrons. You can find letters between Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Adams. Uh, they all really loved Matthew Carey. Carey advised Hamilton at the Treasury Department and he gave birth to his son, Henry Carey. And Henry really took the banner of his father even further. He started off as a free trader, but he came around to expand upon his dad's views. He wrote in 1860 the uh, Protection of Home Industry plank uh, at the GOP convention that moved Pennsylvania into the camp of Lincoln and delivered Lincoln uh, the Republican Party nomination. He advised Lincoln at the Treasury Department. And his key idea was the harmony of interests, promoting solidarity between the manufacturing, agricultural, and commercial powers. He also promoted the idea of bringing markets close to home to avoid the transportation tax and raising the value of man. If you can raise the value of man, freedom follows and slavery will end. Two other thinkers you need to know, Friedrich List. He was a German economist. He came over with the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette uh, plugged him in to the, to the Philadelphia School of American Economics, and his key idea was really that power for nations is more important than wealth. He said, having a storehouse, what's more, what's more valuable, having a storehouse filled with fruit or having a productive orchard? Obviously an orchard. An economic policy ought to promote the planting of trees, the planting of orchards. He was not a dogmatic uh, uh, protectionist. He believed that free trade was appropriate among nations that had reached parity in terms of their industrial development. And finally, he believed that true statesmanship was not sitting with your hands in your lap, but harnessing the productive powers of the nation. And then last but not least, we have Henry Clay, the great senator from the state of Kentucky. Uh, Clay believed that uh, home markets were superior to foreign markets because it pr produced stability in the economy. Your economy was not dependent on wild fluctuations in foreign markets. And finally, he believed that uh, a proper amount of protection was not a return to autarky or fortress America, but it would actually increase trade with other nations, increase commerce, increase revenue, because it would lead to innovation and growth. 
So in closing, what is the legacy and relevance of this tradition for today? Well, it was the American School of Economics that helped uh, our founding fathers establish our economic and political independence from Great Britain. It helped us to defeat uh, the Confederacy, to end slavery, to make America the world's greatest manufacturing power, and to build a, the prosperous middle class in America, which was the envy of the world. Today, there are many parallels between how Britain operated and how then and how China is operating today. Uh, China, if you follow Xi Jinping uh, at the World Economic Forum, will mouth all sorts of platitudes in defense of free trade while practicing a ruthless mercantilist policy that aims not only to destroy America's manufacturing base, but also to destroy the American middle class. And I believe we need to wake up to this threat. We need to apply the principles from the American school, uh, not going back to the 50 or 60% tariff schedule of the 19th century, but apply it prudentially to our challenges today, whether that's 5G technology, whether it's nuclear energy, semiconductors, or medical technology. It is imperative that we establish our economic independence from the Chinese Communist Party and that we rebuild America's great middle class. The final lesson from this school is that a nation cannot be great unless it makes things. So it's time to build again in America. It's time to harness our productive powers to establish the safety, the happiness, and the greatness of the American people. Our founding fathers bled and died for the cause of our economic and political independence. And if we have the courage, we can follow in their footsteps. Thank you.